The best place to find God is in a garden, wrote George Bernard Shaw in one of his novels. And whether his characters actually believe that or not, I think he has a point, because God appears to love gardens. The word is mentioned 13 times in the first three chapters of the Bible, where we read of God walking in the garden he had made. John in his Gospel mentions the tomb in the garden in which Jesus was laid and Mary's encounter with the person she assumed was the gardener. And although the word isn't used, a garden is certainly implied in the last chapters of the Bible with the river of life flowing through the middle of the city with trees on each side. Creation, resurrection and the renewal of all things. Three events with gardens at the heart of their story. Three locations of significant encounters with God. Three notable moments when the best place to find God was in a garden. And in another extraordinary moment of history, Jesus goes to meet God in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. It was the hour of his greatest need when he wrestled with the pain of his fast approaching destiny, where he would be betrayed by one of his disciples and ultimately let down by the rest. Where was God in this garden? Well, let's start with an easier question. Where was this garden? Gethsemane is located by John in his Gospel as a garden in Jerusalem beyond the Kidron Valley. It is therefore taken to be on the lower slopes of the Mount of Olives, some half a mile from the wall of the city. So picture in your mind an orchard-like space, not a, not a garden in the traditional English sense with a neatly trimmed lawn, but rather a tended area with olive trees. Because Gethsemane probably means oil press or olive press, a place where, with the aid of a donkey perhaps, a huge stone wheel was rolled in a circular fashion over another large stone, crushing the olives beneath and releasing their oil. It's a place where Jesus was pressed and squeezed and crushed, spiritually and emotionally. Now standing was the usual posture for prayer in ancient times with the hands lifted heavenwards. But do you notice that Jesus falls to the ground to pray? The reading says he's distressed and troubled and overwhelmed with sorrow to such a degree that he falls to the ground to pray and pours out his heart to his father in prayer. Now Passover was decreed by Moses to be a time of watchful wakefulness. Exodus 12:42 because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. But while Jesus pours out his heart in anguished prayer, the disciples are feeling drowsy. And when Jesus finds them again, they are sleeping. Using his old name, not the name that he gave him later, Jesus chides Peter. 
Simon, couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now Jesus was human like us. He valued the comfort and support of friends in difficult times. But uppermost in his mind is the disciples themselves. He knows that they are going to face extreme pressure and he doesn't want them to fail. He doesn't want them to fall. They need to be spiritually ready for the test that is coming their way. Jesus goes away to pray a second time. He comes back a second time and he finds them asleep again. And it wasn't just a physical tiredness. Luke tells us that they were tired, exhausted from sorrow. Because Jesus had told them that, they were, that he was leaving soon and that must have weighed heavily on their hearts. But still, they've got no excuse for sleeping. They have no words to say. They are speechless. Jesus goes away to pray a third time. He comes back a third time. And the third time he finds them asleep. And he chides them for their lack of watchfulness. But now something has shifted. Enough, Jesus says. It's a word that can mean the bill is paid, the matter is settled. Jesus is resolute. The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. We know from books and films and media reports, maybe even personally, that questionable arrests are often made at night. Firstly, because the, the victims are sleepy and vulnerable, and secondly, because the neighbours aren't around to witness what's happening or to protest. And so it was then that Judas leads the religious authorities to Gethsemane, and there he approaches his master, he addresses him as master, he kisses his master, and betrays his master. And for a moment, all hell breaks loose. Jesus' disciples have a couple of swords between them, and one of them slashes off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Many years later, when it's safer to identify him, John will write that it was Peter who started swinging. Peter, who, had he watched and prayed, would have been better prepared to react to this sudden turn of events. It could have got very ugly, but Jesus steps in before it gets completely out of hand. Luke tells us that he heals the servant's ear, but Mark isn't bothered about that, apparently. He focuses on Jesus' words. The words that calmed the raging storms now calm the situation that is bubbling up. And his disciples, wrong-footed perhaps by Jesus' acceptance of what was happening, maybe furiously calculating in their heads what was going to happen next, make a dash for it including one unidentified man who wriggles out of his garment and makes off in his birthday suit. So that's the story. But let's go back now to our original question. Where is God in the garden? 
if I had been a bystander and you had asked me then, where is God in this garden? I would have said, I don't know. God appears to be strangely silent. Jesus is going back and forth, apparently praying the same prayer as if his father isn't listening. The disciples appear physically and spiritually dopey as if they're completely unaware that something truly momentous is happening. Jesus' enemies come to arrest him, but Jesus doesn't pass through them like he has in the past. He appears trapped as if his father isn't bothered about coming to his rescue. So if you had asked me then, where is Jesus in this garden, I would have said, I don't know. I would have been deeply troubled because God appears silent, God appears absent. And many of us know what that feels like. God, you showed up there, why didn't you show up here? You answered that prayer, why didn't you answer this prayer? You stopped that from happening, why didn't you stop this from happening? But God is in this garden. We may only see his shadow fleetingly in the text itself, but with the benefit of hindsight, we can see that the signs of his presence were there all along. But to see them clearly, we need to hold two things in our minds at once. Firstly, we need to hold in our minds the freedom of humankind. The persons in this true story all have the freedom to choose their actions. The disciples chose sleep. They could have stayed awake and prayed, but they fell asleep. Had they not been able to stay awake, then it would have been unfair for Jesus to ask them to do so. But he did, and they didn't. And as a result, they weren't ready for the test that followed. The disciples chose. Judas chose to betray Jesus. We're not sure exactly why he did what he did, but he chose. The crowds that came with Judas chose to play their part in Jesus' arrest. And lastly, Jesus himself makes a choice. Abba Father, he says, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Jesus chooses the path that is set out before him. Now, this all might seem as if I'm stating the obvious, but in view of what I'm about to say, I think it does need saying. The individuals in this story made their choices. They weren't carried along by factors outside of their control. They freely chose. But that's not the only truth. At the same time as holding up human freedom, we must also hold up the sovereignty of God. The closer we look at our passage, the more we are drawn to a conclusion of inevitability about what actually happens. Jesus prays that this hour will pass from him. And in the Gospels, Jesus repeatedly talks about this hour. His whole life has been pointing to this hour. Even before the final Passover with his disciples, John records Jesus saying, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, 
No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. There is more than Jesus' will at play. There is the Father's will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And the New Testament writers have a lot more to say about the Father's will in their letters. Peter, for example, in 1, chapter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, says, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Let that thought sink in, that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world. Jesus chose, and he was chosen. Judas leads the crowds to Jesus, but Jesus knew it was coming during the Last Supper. He had said, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Jesus is arrested. Is that an unfortunate turn of events? Well, apparently not. Shortly before his arrest, Luke's record, Luke records Jesus as quoting Isaiah 53 and chapter 12. It is written, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you that this must be fulfilled in me. Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfilment. The disciples scatter. Is that a coincidence? No, it's not. Just a few verses before our section, Jesus says to his disciples, quoting Zechariah 13 and verse 7, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. None of this is happening by chance. Jesus says to the crowds that have come to arrest him, Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Where was God in his garden? Well, Jesus was aware of him, working his purposes out for our salvation. And the free choices of the disciples, of Judas, of the crowds, and of Jesus himself all form a rich tapestry according to the Father's master design. The writer of the book of Acts brings together these parallel thoughts of the freedom of humanity and the sovereignty of God into one verse, Acts chapter 2 and verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. What are we to take away from all of this? Many of us will not be strangers to the feeling that God is absent when we need him most. We wonder if we are praying or if we're just talking to ourselves. But here and elsewhere in scripture, we see that in the darkest of circumstances, God is working his purposes out, and no one and nothing can thwart him. Reflecting on one of the times that uh, David faced upheaval as Israel's king, 
Author Dale Ralph Davis writes, God's scepter is unseen, his sovereignty hidden behind the conversations and decisions and activities and crises of our lives. He's not absent, but neither is he obvious. If we are facing difficult times, even the darkest of times, God is working his purposes out. We may not see him or feel him or understand what his purposes are, but God is present in the garden. And then secondly, this passage should leave us feeling incredibly humble, humble and grateful. When we grasp something of the enormity of the fact that Jesus freely embraced his destiny, even knowing the grim reality of what was about to come, that he was willing to go to the cross to die for you and me so that we might have a relationship with his father, that he chose the cross because he loved us so much, then that should leave us speechless. The paradox that God works in his sovereignty while at the same time we exercise our freedom should blow our minds. But the mystery of God loving us enough to die for us, even when we were his enemies, is on another level beyond our comprehension. But this is where the journey to the cross is leading us. And it will eventually lead us to another garden, a garden in which God will be so clearly and abundantly present in power and glory. But until then, we wait. Until then, we trust. Until then, we take up Jesus' powerful and courageous words for ourselves. Not what I will, but what you will. Amen. So be it.